Welcome to the Conduit Deeper Podcast, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the details that surround our current sermon series. From current events to fascinating finds to conversations that take us deeper into the Word. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to our Deeper Podcast. My name is Mo, campus pastor at Conduit Church, joined with our lead pastor, Darren Tyler. And when I pulled into the parking lot this morning, normally I'm the first guy here, um, and it's just part of my routine. But when I got in here where I normally park, there was a jack sitting, like a tire, like a car jack sitting in the parking spot. Now, there was no other cars around it. It was just this lone car jack sitting in the parking lot and your car parked in the corner. So me trying to be a detective, trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. Yeah. So let's start that with that. What, (laughs) what story did you write in your head? Okay. What was the narrative that you had? Man, I, um, I did kind of quickly deduce that it, it was probably your car jack but I was confused as to like, why is there a car jack sitting in a parking lot, a parking space by itself yeah. in your car, which still had all four wheels on it. Mm-hmm. You were not in the building. Right. Um, and so I'm trying to remember who parked there last time when I left. Now I remembered your daughter's car was there. Okay. Which when, is a, when I left yesterday. Excellent memory. Uh, but everything else was, was really uh, confusing and I really didn't, write a story other than I need more data. <laughs> <laughs> That's good because, you know, I just didn't know if you had like a, a narrative of like a crime has been committed that involved a jack. And, uh, which was totally possible. Yeah. I hadn't gone that far. I was like, you know, it's early. Yeah. I need more information. Um, so luckily you, you, you texted me yeah. uh, about a half hour later. Yeah. And it was my daughter's <laughs> tire had been. The thing about being a dad to daughters, especially, you know, is that it's now, look, I don't know, like I I should ask Buford, you know, if it ends, but, you know, my 22 year old daughter, you know, drove here from North Carolina and her, her car had been hit in a parking lot. Like she's bad. She didn't do anything. She wakes up in the morning and, you know, the Genesis three world, somebody hit and run, but it like, like shredded her tire to the point like baby how did you drive here like i didn't it was like made me nervous so scary so yeah i took it to uh get it fixed this morning while she's sleeping such a good dad well that's what i'm saying like i I didn't even think about it like i'm thinking she's 22 years old you know my dad i don't know about you guys but like when my dad like when i left maybe this is what you do with sons i don't know i'm about to do this with Ethan, but my dad gave me a handshake and i think he might have given me a hundred bucks and that was it. Like the deal was done. Like he had, we were, the contracts were signed. He is sending me off and never again did he buy or change a tire or anything for me. But, you know, I continue to be, you know, the, the guys at Discount Tire know me by face because I've got three daughters and yeah. a wife and, yeah. you know, turns out that's, you know, that's a combined 12 tires, you know. Well, anyway. I, I applaud you for jumping in to save the day and uh, everything now makes sense for yeah. the lone Jack sitting in the parking lot. This week, this Sunday, we wrapped up our sermon series. Yeah, more and, than a name, and it was you, Mo. You did it. Yeah, yeah. Was like you were the it. headliner of this tour. Is that how that works? Yeah. So like, and I thought you crushed it. You know. Oh, thank you. So you were like the you were like the opening act for the first three, and then I came in yeah. to close it. Yeah, like I'm the band that did pay to play to get on the front end of the tour. Lights down, hoping that people <laughs> you know might buy a couple of my records and. Um, yeah, you, you came in and... Or lights yeah, up. Yeah. It's funny. I thing that I was thinking while you were teaching, um, randomly, Liz, what, what, like what year was it that you worked at a Christian bookstore? Like this was your foray. Yeah, so 1997 was my first job ever. Okay. And, and it was I, in a bookstore. I worked for Family Christian Stores, Beaver Creek, Ohio, store number 41. Store number 41. That's right. In the music department. The, okay. So in, in in the music department in those days, did they have um, like little listening stations? Absolutely. With so little... part of my job was to clean up those listening stations, put the CDs back, um, you know, put the headphones back where they're supposed to belong, rewind the tapes if there were tapes to be listened to, which there were, 
So they were still doing cassettes in cassettes, 1997. Cassettes and CDs, yeah. And most of the cassettes, though, were like accompaniment tracks, you know, for solos, for the Opry solos. Dude, that was a business <laughs> it was model. huge. Yeah. Huge. I think it was so, called Star Tracks or something like that. I don't think I remember the name of it. Oh, and they would, like, so that was, that was the, the money money for an artist. Because... You know, you were chasing the, the dollar, you know, uh, you know, recoup, all that. But if your song, like Twyla Paris, yep, she'd be right. out there gardening in Fort Smith with Jack, but making money hand over fist because people are singing, you know, The Warrior is a Child. And buying the accompaniment track. For like 10 bucks, right? Uh-huh. For a song. Yeah. And so, yeah, part of the gig was, you know, rewinding those, getting it back in the, the cassette holder, and then, you know, making sure it was alphabetized correctly. Alphabetized. I guess as I'm thinking, I'm watching you speak, and we, 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 we have some people there. There's a lot of people in our church, and but I, mean, I don't. Know, for some reason, I was like flashing back to 1997 Mo, like probably putting like see the seven, like 97. That would have been probably Third Day. Oh yeah. Um, some Avalon. Jars of clay. Jars of clay. Oh yeah. Delirious. Did you guys did so when you were working there? Did anybody ever call? Like, did any agents ever call and ask you what concerts were coming t- to the area? Do Absol- you remember? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, people, yeah. Nashville would call yeah. occasionally and, you know, try to read the, the lay of the land as to what tours were coming through. Because we were a suburb of Dayton, Ohio, yep. um, we were kind of a prime location between Day- uh, between Cincinnati and Columbus to, you know, pick up a, a show, yeah. uh, a concert, like on, a, on an off night. Yeah. So, because I, what I was thinking about was, I wonder if I had ever called you <laughs> as an agent. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you know, I don't know if you know this, kids, but there was a time before you could Google things, right. and and in those days, I remember like when I went to William Morris Agency, especially, they didn't want a website for their company. Because if we put our concert tours online, they're like, we're just giving the world our database, yeah. which we were. Uh, you know, they were also in every tour magazine. But in those days, is this young agent world, whatever, I would literally, I made friends with music guys and girls all over America. So I'd be on the phone trying to find like, you know, Ian Eskelin and All-Star Unite or whatever. I'm trying to find a tour date in Dayton, hypothetically. So I would befriend people in music departments and just say, hey, what, what tour posters are hanging on totally. your wall? Yeah. Hey, what's that phone number? Do you know who that guy is? Yeah. Are they any good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that happened often. Did it? Yeah. Yeah, we had a huge bulletin board yeah. where all the concert posters would hang. And but ironically, I would do the exact same thing. I used that job as an advantage because I was in a local Christian rock band myself. So... What was, uh, what was the name of this so man? So I would use, I'm not going to say. Uh, <laughs> Micah, what was the name of your dad's band? We're going to so, we're gonna find out one way or the other. So I would use all the national tours coming through to then book my own band to be the opening band. So you're, hey, I'm in, what was it? Too Fat to Skate? Like, what was the name of the band? <laughs> Too Fat. Afghanistan, uh, Bananistan. Like what? That's so funny. The band name was Flair, F L A. R E like a road flare, like on the side of the road. Oh. We, you know, Jesus is our, our flare. flare. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. I'm sorry. Was. That's what it was. It wasn't great. No, it wasn't. But but the band was, you know, not half bad. In, in fairness to you, m- most band names from the '90s, especially. I mean, Audio Adrenaline is a terrible band. Name. Oh yeah. Look, I I actually disqualified myself from actually having opinions on band names because I thought Jars of Clay was the dumbest. Name. I mean, it did. I, was it too literal or what? Yeah, I was like, well, Jars of Clay, you know, like straight out of the scripture. Like it just felt, I don't know, it felt too cheesy, too obvious. And then Third Day comes along and I'm like, ugh. Too obvious? So dumb, you know, Third Day. And then when I finally tapped out on it was telling Jay DeMarcus that I, yeah, I didn't really much like the name Rascal Flats. <laughs> it's a terrible name. Right? Except that it's It's a river perfect. in Ohio. No, who cares, right? But apparently uh, nobody cared because, you know, so... So I am no longer qualified, which is why when I named our church conduit that I'm like, you know what, y'all can just <laughs> stick it because that's apparently true. names are not that big of a deal. So. Well, that's what we learned about in this whole series is that it's more than a name, right? Mm. It's more than a name. Uh, the conduit isn't the name of a church. Uh, it's a kind of church. It's a type of church that we would be conduits of Jesus, conduits of the Spirit, the hands and feet. Uh, and so we culminated that series this Sunday 
And we really just kind of dove into Acts 2.42, which is the foundational verse in which we, um, we've we kind of built this church upon. Mm-hmm. For 12 years now, yeah. yeah and and before, honestly. It's set, um, it gives us some guardrails, I feel. Yeah. Some guardrails on how to stay focused on the path towards discipleship, towards relationship with Jesus. Yeah, the thing that, the, the, so the guardrails that it gives us is... I think is actually in the key word of devoted to that, that, that word devoted that in the church world, especially there are so many things, good uh, things that we can get devoted to, to. And when I say devoted, like there's a lot of good things like in my house, for instance, but I'm devoted to my wife. Like I have to, I save that for the relationship with my wife, not with my yard or you know, my home, like, right. So the devotion is the key. And so when you look at verses 43 through 47 of Acts two, you know, there's people getting healed. There's evangelism happening. The the poor are being taken care of. Those are all amazing things. But if you're devoted to one of those things and not devoted to the four things of 242, it's going to warp your ministry it's going to burn your ministry down at some point because, you know, James warns us about becoming weary in well-doing. And I think that is what he's talking about. You could, I mean, James, right? He's the guy that says that the true religion is caring for the poor, like for the orphan, for the widow, a good thing, right? But being devoted to that in a way that is more than that I'm devoted to Jesus, you will burn yourself out with it. And so, for us, coming back to those four things, those are the guardrails, like the, the language that we've used before. That's the frame. Those are the four walls of the frame. Set the frame and set you free. That's right. Whatever's inside of that frame, you are free. Uh, but these, are, this is our framework, and it starts with that. And those four things are what, Mo? Well, yeah, I mean, they devoted themselves to, I mean, the verse, Acts 2.42 reads, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those are the four things, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread or communion, Mm -hmm. uh, and prayers. And they were profoundly dedicated. That's kind of the definition of devotion, Yeah, to be profoundly dedicated. I found that so interesting Uh um, because it's deeper than just being disciplined to something or Mm -hmm. dedicated to something. It's profoundly dedicated. It's a a weight, it's a heft. And what what I love about it is the simplicity in it all. Like there's a simplicity. The, the thing about new technology, so I I, mean, I used to have a Jeep, like an old Wrangler, 1980s. Really? Like you could take the top off kind of thing? Oh yeah. Nice. But the thing about Jeeps then, what was so awesome about them was they're so simple. There's no electronics in it. Like I could replace the fuel pump. I could replace brakes. Like it was it was very simple. The, the newer vehicles, all those bells and whistles that make them so fun means there are more things to break, the more no possibilities of things to go wrong and it, the, the, the fancier it is. And there's something to that in a church of the more programs, the more complicated you make it, the more rules and regulations and policies and procedures, and uh, then the more things that you have to go wrong. And when you go back to the original idea for a church, like these folks right here, they that was pretty doggone simple. And I remember a friend telling me once, yeah, but Darren, they didn't stay that way. They had to, and I was like, yeah, but that's why they had Second Corinthians, right? Because the first one, you're like, yeah, okay, true. you guys, you guys got to quit doing this crap. You can't be getting hammered at the Lord's Supper. You can, you know, you can, you got a bunch of Jesus people together, and the more rules and regulations and policies and procedures and all, all that stuff, the more heavy you make it, the more we can get really good at succeeding at stuff that doesn't really matter. And even when we are succeeding at stuff that does matter, if we are failing at these four things, then we're doing it without a foundation underneath of us. And just like my daughter's tire, her car was running just fine. But if that tire blew, uh, she's going to be on the side of the road for a little bit with it. So we got to pay attention to those four essentials, those four tires that keep us moving. And and I don't want to go into this in depth because it's – there's a lot of opinions and, and ideas, and 
but you'd have to be have living under a rock uh, if to to not know that in just the last few months, especially, but the last few years, the amount of problems that have been arising out of of, of, of specific churches in America. Um, I mean, the, the Southern Baptist this week there was a, a report released by GuideStar uh, outlining uh, abuse that lasted, you know, over decades and decades and. Um, and I look at that and, and like you, like everybody, I'm, I'm, I'm grieved by it. And I'm like, Ugh, like, why is this? And I wonder if, so I could simplify it and just say, well, there's humans involved. So human things are going to happen. And that's true. There's sin. Um, the race right now and the rush is more guidelines, more rules, more policies, more regulations, and look, I don't know if that's the answer or not. Uh, I know that humans, if there's anything that we have thousands of years of human history, is that uh, humans have a profound way of working around rules and regulations and policies and procedures. Started in the garden. Yep. So you create a rule. That's great. I'll find a loophole. <laughs> so it doesn't. My point is, it's not that we don't need those necessarily, but it is that that's not going to fix anything. Um, th- there's actually a, a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 13. And it is this very simple thing when he says that the kingdom of God is going to be like a man who is, uh, he drops a seed into the ground in the garden uh, and it grows into a great, I think King James actually says a great tree, a mighty tree. Uh, so it's a mustard seed that grows into a, a mighty tree and that all kinds of birds will roost in its branches. That's Luke chapter 13, verse 19. And on the surface, that seems to be a parable saying that that's it, the kingdom of God, this little tiny seed, and it's going to grow into this amazing and mighty tree. But I've been to Israel, and mustard seeds don't grow into great and mighty trees. They grow into bushes. And birds are always a picture of evil in the scriptures. One of the parables that Jesus told right before he told this one was the parable of the sower. The sower sows the word. Right, and the, well, this is going to fall on hard ground, and but but one of them is that birds are going to come and pick away at the the word of God. Uh, that's one of the, the things that the sower uh, steals the word. So I'm wondering, and I, this is not necessarily a thus saith the Lord, as it is a thus saith the Darren. I this seems to me that Jesus wasn't encouraging us; he was warning us to not let this grow into something freakish. Yeah and large and centralized because the more large and centralized, the more birds are going to roost in the branches, picking away at the word of God. And then what do we know? If you cut down the man, quote unquote, man of God, if this is built on a man of God model, Mm -hmm. cut down that and the whole thing falls as opposed to a mustard bush, you know, a a regular old mustard tree-ish bush, you cut one of those down and they, they grow in like, they're like weeds, man. Yeah. You, you knock them down and they just, like, those little seeds fall everywhere and more of them grow. Uh, when you look at the history of communist Russia versus communist China, when communism came into Russia, they were largely successful in taking out Christianity for a season because it was based upon Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. It was based on take out the man of God and you take out mm-hmm. the church. China uh, is based on house churches, decentralized. And man, they, you know, they knock one of those house churches down and 20 of them grow out of it. Like it's literally right. unstoppable. And, and so when we bring that back into the American ideal, I'm not here to make a case for house churches versus mega churches. Or What I am here to make a case for is simplicity. And however many people are gathering on a Sunday in any church, we got to keep it simple. And the simplicity is 242. How did it become complicated? Like, what about American culture over the past 40 years, 50 years, took it from being so simple? Like, you know, my wife and I have talked about this. We're, like, all in on the little house on the prairie right now. Oh, yeah. You know, just a little schoolhouse that also operated as a church, and they would gather. And, I mean, just simple, right? It's romanticized, I I need to go back and remember. What was Laura Engel's older sister? Mary. Mary. She was hot. (laughs) Do you remember? Like, I remember, like, I was a kid. I remember thinking, she's hot. She had, like, those blue eyes. Uh, like ice blue uh, 
Uh, Wait, when was she? Did she go blind? Remember, she well, went blind. That, don't ruin it for me, man. Oh, sorry. I'm only on season two. Spoiler: She might not go blind. It's, <laughs> at some point, there's a blind person. No, she does. She I does go mean. blind. Okay, and then and then uh, Pop turns into an angel and becomes you know. Uh, Touched by an angel. No, wait. No, what? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Highway to Heaven. What was Highway his angel show? Highway, Highway to Heaven. heaven. Yeah, that was before Roma Downey became an angel. Um, sorry. Point is that if like the simplicity, like enjoy the simplicity of that, right? Yeah. But what is what happened over? What has happened? Like I'm asking a question. Like what has yeah. happened over the past forty to fifty years, where the simplicity of the of the church has turned into these leadership organizations, yeah. these fast growth tracks. There's a there's a sense or an element dare I say, of like this capitalistic approach yeah. to growing these churches into maybe more complex than, than they should be. Yeah, I think that human nature, don't you think? Like that yeah. that's part of it that, like I could actually make a case biblically on a whiteboard for actually like probably three different kinds of New Testament leadership for a church. And every one of them has pros and cons. And every one of them, uh, because there are humans involved, there are, you know, Achilles heels involved in them. So it's like when you see a church implode and you think, well, that's because they had a one-man guy and he was alone, whatever. Maybe. But we've also seen churches with very strict elder leadership that have had things happening as well. So it's because there's humans involved. Yeah, no doubt. There's that. But I wonder if that we have confused... An, and I don't want to say an American because it's actually a human idea of winning. And winning means more yeah. and better and that bigger is better mm-hmm. and that more, you know, so that, but, but then you get more people, then you got to organize it. Um, and then when you organize it, uh, you got to then rules. And, and I don't know, like the, for me, one of the things that we I feel like we try to do here is, you know, just because we've encountered a problem on this thing doesn't mean we need a new rule to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist. That was just one person, and that happened there. We'll deal with it. But we don't need now a new policy in the manual to try to deal with a problem that doesn't exist. Because when you do that, if you put a new rule and policy in place, every time something wrong happens, before long you end up with the the United States government, which is laws and and bills that are thousands of pages long that nobody even reads, right, because you're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. And uh, So I, I think there's that. I think that... From my perspective, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book a few years back. It wasn't one of his best ones, but David versus Goliath. And there's this chapter where he's talking about George Washington and the American Revolution. And he refers to the fact that, you know, in in the early days, Washington was this scrappy, nimble force. And they were winning. They were defeating the British army. And the more successful they became, they started wearing uniforms now because we're successful. They started lining up to battle like the British battled, which when you look back on those wars, you're like, they're they're literally everybody who's standing here and you're all standing over there and we're all aiming and firing at the same time. Like, dude, get behind a rock. Have you not seen a Western yet? Like, no. And the answer is they had not because they had not happened. But- but Malcolm Gladwell said that when his premise was that when they started Britainizing the army was when they started failing. Interesting. That the uniforms, the very things that made them successful, they lost in their attempt after becoming successful. I remember reading that. It's probably 12 years ago. I remember reading that on a plane and thinking, I don't know if that was a thus saith the Lord. I don't know if God speaks in Malcolm Gladwell's voice. I hope not, if I'm being honest. But I remember thinking, don't Britainize the army for us. Like, don't don't uh, formalize everything in such a way that you're not nimble and scrappy anymore. Be able to, you know, be nimble. Be So I think there's something to that. I think there's even our idea of instead of us starting a ministry of a, let's say, like the homeschoolers, for instance. We didn't say we are starting a homeschool organization. We love those things. We love homeschool stuff. But when Hannah Fratt starts something in her home that the Lord has put on her heart to do, you know, and we trust Hannah, we know her and Justin have known them for years. We let's bless them, quote unquote, and by saying equip them, give them what they what we have at least that they need, and then they just and let them go. 
So that's a decentralized. That's like a mustard tree standing beside right. a mustard tree right. instead of me trying to uh, grow another branch out of the conduit tree. And that's true of, you know, the, the Ortons. It's true of Coop, of Caven Fletcherin. Like across the board to say that if you've got an idea and a passion, the men's Bible study that met in our uh, foyer this morning, you know, we didn't declare let's start a men's Bible study. Some men who we love and trust who had just started that, we we're like, well, hey, we can equip you by giving you a place and uh, some electricity and some air conditioning. And a, uh, now, is it dangerous to do it that way? Sure. But is it dangerous to do it the other way where we control it all? Sure. So it's not necessarily maybe dangerous the wrong word. It's just that it's by us controlling it and centralizing it. It's not that that stops or protects anything. It just creates a different set of problems. So for this one, it's like, okay. Uh, I think that when you go back to the American idea, that we have this thought that, uh, and I, I said American again, Western, I don't know, that if we control it all, that somehow then we have this illusion of safety. Right. And then we have this illusion of control. And I don't know if 12 years of pastoring have taught me anything, but that any control I think I have is 100% an illusion, you know, that things are going to pop up. So I don't know if that answers. Like, what do you think? Well, I think one of the issues is. Um Evident on the report that came out this week, um, it was a survey, a nationwide survey from the um, Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, um, Gallup. Um, no, I'm not sorry. I'm sorry, not Gallup. Mr. Barna, conducted by George Barna and his okay. team, put out a, a survey this week that said a new nationwide survey of a um, survey of American Christian pastors shows that a majority of pastors lack a biblical worldview. In fact, slightly more than a third, 37% possess a biblical worldview. This is pastors. Pastors. So this was a survey of over a thousand pastors. 37% came back saying that they indeed possess a biblical worldview. 62% said they hold a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. So we would be in the minority. What did they define? Do you know? Does it say the questions they were asking? No, it doesn't show the questions, but it, it showed um, those things that they, uh, like. Like is the question on the, I wonder if the question on the survey is, do you have a biblical worldview? <laughs> like if I know anything about Barna, I'll bet Gabe. Lions would know the answer to this question. Yeah. But if I know anything about Barna, I feel like he's asking questions that are either you are, this is either biblical worldview or it's not. And then he just sort of combines them together to say that, okay, if you believe these things, this is not a biblical worldview, as opposed to just saying this is a biblical worldview, which by the way, would be a more accurate answer. Because if you, sure. I would bet my left arm that if you ask most pastors, and if the only question is, do you have a biblical worldview, they would probably say yes. Mm-hmm. But when you press into specific beliefs, those are not biblical. The, you know, but that's where that would come from. But either way, I do trust Barna's research. And so if he's saying 37% have a world biblical worldview, that's a... That's scary. That's scary. So they would they would maybe look at our Acts 242 model or, uh, you know, approach as maybe not as <laughs> valuable as maybe we would hold it. Interesting. And the syncretism is 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 the majority, and that is just basically they're taking different bits and pieces of Christianity along with other worldviews, putting it together as the kind of held version of of leading a church. Um, that, that's a problem. Hmm. And for us, um, we we. The very first thing listed in Acts 2.42 is that they uh, devoted themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God. Yeah. And so for us, I mean, that is that's a, that is definitely a, a hill for us to die on, is the authority of the Scripture. It's a hill to die on because without that, we don't know that Jesus died on a hill. Like, we can't know that that's without right. the biblical that's right. ideology of it. Mm-hmm. That the Jesus that... I had a lunch with a guy here in town, and he's a great guy, a musician in the Christian music world, and he's genuinely seeking and you know wondering and asking questions, and I really respected him for even being willing to sit with me. And But the thing that that I find to be a challenge with, like this guy, is that he'll, he loves Jesus. He loves the teachings of Jesus. He loves that. So he will say that, this is Jesus this and Jesus that. 
while simultaneously, you know, saying horrible things about the Bible. And my thought is that's an incongruent thought. Because if, if, if I can't trust the Bible, then I don't know that Jesus actually said this. There's just no way to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and we don't have we don't have nearly enough time in, in an episode like this to say, but I can make a very solid case, and many many smarter people than me have made a solid case that what is sitting in front of us in this book is accurate. That it is exactly as it was. You know, the the Dead Sea Scrolls proved that the Psalms, this, the, the Old Testament, like it is what was given to us. So we can at least start with the fact that it's accurate. And then the question is, is if it's accurate, then is it trustworthy, right? And again, that's a whole other conversation, but it's, I, I, I believe that it is. And if we had a whole other show, we could talk about why it is. But just based on that is how we know who Jesus was and what Jesus has called us to do. And I remember, uh, golly, I think we were still at the high school, and a pastor friend of mine that was visiting said, um, boy, you use the Bible a lot when you speak. <laughs> and I don't know that he meant it in that weird way, but I— Like surprised? Uh-huh. Like it was curious. Wow, you, you really use the Bible a lot when you speak. And the, the truth is, is that that's not necessarily that common anymore. Now, it is common. I, I don't want to—there are a lot of pastors out there that they do, the Bible is the basis for what they are building their case on. Um, I just happen, I don't know, even thinking of the denomination he came out of, it was just just an interesting question for him to say. Uh, But I wonder if it came out of, you know, there was an era, and maybe it still exists in a lot of places, where the Sunday message, uh, there would have been a Bible verse but it was really a life lesson from a verse right? as opposed to the Bible mm-hmm. and what's this actually say to us. That's what these guys were doing here, the apostles teaching. Mm-hmm. They were just expounding on what Jesus said. Yeah, They were just – so the, the teaching of God's word is what Paul did. I mean he would – he'd be with a church like Ephesus and he'd be with them for weeks and they would just for hours a day just into God's – Word And for them, initially it was Torah, but then Paul would write these letters that were then passed around to the churches that later would become recognized as spirit-inspired, right, including the Gospels, which were passed around as well. Uh, and that's what we have now to look at and say, this is who we are. And the, and the truth, the, for the most part, people, when they say they have a problem with the Bible— it's the parts that they don't want to be a part of their own life that the problem is. So it's whether it's sexual sin, whether it's gender identity, whether it's with the French, man, back in the 400 years ago or 500 years ago when they decided that they – this is 100 percent true. For 100 years of French history, they went from a seven-day work week to a 10-day work week because the only, only place that you can defend and figure out a seven-day cycle is the Bible. Right. There's no – pagan calendar that makes for that. (laughs) So the French decided to go for a 10-day work week and, by the way, destroyed their economy Mm. with it because God's word, he's not arbitrary and capricious. His commands are actually for our good and for our flourishing, not to be a giant buzzkill. You know, the idea that, you know, sex in the confines of a marriage is not a burdensome thing. It's a gift to us. And it's why even as early as the 90s in Seinfeld and talking about the idea of a friends with benefit, there was an entire episode based on can Jerry and Elaine have a sexual relationship and remain friends. And it was hilarious because we know that it doesn't work. Like it right. just, that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. And here we are 30 years later, people still being genuinely surprised, mm-hmm. raging against it. And it's just a simple command from scripture. So yeah, being based on the apostles teaching on the word of God is a hill that we die on because it's the hill that Jesus died on. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Teaching of the word and then fellowship, sharing uh, lives, sharing our lives together, coming together and gather. I mean, if we've learned anything over the past two years, we've learned that isolation 
mm. um, does not lead to uh, healthy lives. <laughs> like it, there's the, the stats are coming out over and over and over of what isolation has done to to all of us, um, especially our children. It's playing out right now. It's catching up. Um, and so when when we devote ourselves to gathering, to living shared lives, to yeah. to to um, interacting and being with one another, um, the benefits from that are um, uh, uh, countless. They're powerful. Yeah. Um, our church has seen how, how that's played out over the past couple of years. And one example is just simply the Operation Freedom Project that we put together. When we gathered and we shared the what could happen if we uh, gave towards this goal of freeing slaves on the other side of the world, people we don't even know, never even met, when we gathered together and um, taught and, and educated ourselves about this, what what exploded, the catalyst from that is unbelievable. Yeah. We shared a little bit of that on Sunday. Yeah. I, if I have an idea or you have an idea, if, you know, a great example of this is that the first family that was ever set free in this ministry was actually just set, was set free by Eric and Sammy Newberry. Yeah. Out of their house in Ohio. And that's awesome. They, their personal revenue, they, you know, they, they raised the money and they, they set the, the slave free. Actually, I don't think they raised it. I think they just donated it. I could have done the same thing. You could have done the same thing. But in a church setting, now that we're coming together, making multiple people aware of it, it's not just one family anymore. It's 200, almost 50 families right now, 1,200 people. Mm -hmm. Because we gathered in a church world, you literally together can do more. Mm -hmm. And that word fellowship is the word quinonia. Uh, anybody that's been around Christianity for any length of time, in the 70s especially, like every Christian coffee shop was called quinonia. In fact, I think there was a Christian rock and roll group called oh, man. quinonia. That's why you couldn't call it quinonia. You had to stick with, <laughs> stick with flair or somebody got quinonia. That was a word that uh, that was the, the Hebrew, or the, I'm sorry, the Greek word. And, and it's a Greek word that means way, way more than just sitting in a row on a Sunday. It doesn't mean less than that, but it means more than that. We see it here all the time. Uh, this Sunday, there's a, one of our, 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 our church widows, who's, her son is in hospice right now. Yeah. And I, I was looking out and I watched Donna Van Leer, a couple of others on the prayer team. They're surrounding her. They're praying for her. They're caring, like they are quinoneeing her with it. That's not just we sat side by side. They are in it with wow, her. Right. It means, so when Paul in Romans 15 and then again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9, he was talking about an offering that they were giving to the saints in Jerusalem uh, who were suffering, who were in persecution. And when he uses the word donation or gather, like the money we're taking. He, he, he actually doesn't say we're taking up an offering. He says, we're receiving your koinonia, your fellowship. So on Sunday, when our people gave of their own money to help Mark and Victoria Bowling in the work that they're doing, that was koinonia. That wasn't writing a check or hitting donate. They were literally sharing of their lives together with it. And being devoted to that. We're in a world right now that is fighting for scraps of our time from sports to school to homework, literally being pulled in a million directions. Fractured. Yeah. And it is part of what is literally crushing our own souls is because we're – I've got a little bit of time here. I mean, I, you know, I live in a neighborhood now, so there's a neighborhood event going on all the time. There's the, 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 the shame of I don't know my own neighbors. We've got the school events going on. Then there's a school play. Then there's your own. So literally there's without we don't like we're not travel soccer people, travel sports people. But even with where we are, like it's we are constantly being pulled. So you end up going a mile wide and an inch deep. And it's a pretty lonely existence. Yeah. 
shallow. Yeah. Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. They didn't have all that. They they literally needed each other to yeah. survive. <laughs> yeah. And the koinonia moment here, the reason we've got to be devoted to it is the world is devoted to destroying it. So our devotion has got to be to going deep with it, to needing each other. And for, for you know all these things we're talking about happening in our country, in our, our normal weekly podcast here, whatever is happening in our world, whatever is coming down the pipeline, koinonia is going to be more and more and more and more needed than it's ever been. Yeah, no and doubt. it would be way better for us to be practiced at it mm-hmm. before we're thrown into it. Uh, I, I know this. I used to feel guilty. Uh, feel guilty. Felt, I felt pity, uh, sadness, in places like Haiti because they were so poor. But now, I recognize there there is poor. There's poverty of money, but they are rich in relationship rich they they depend on each other they are intertwined with each other and i feel uh i feel pity now for our teenagers for our country we have all the money in the world and our relationships are uh, are vapid from it and god help us and you know i pray that the only way to not get that back is that we have to have it all pulled out from under us but i also know that if it is all pulled out from under us that we may experience some, you know, some scary times, but we're going to experience a depth of relationship like we've never experienced before. Yeah, it might be a good idea to get to know your neighbors or those that live in your community uh, just for the sake of carpooling. <laughs> for no other reason right, than to learn to carpool to save on gas right now. Because, you know, last, last podcast we reported we were what uh, – what did I say? Six days in a row or nine days in a row no, of record gas prices were up nine. to 15 days. Again, again yesterday, uh, we, we've, the, the street continues for record high gas prices. Um, and it's not really slowing down. My, my brother and his family are, are making the trek down for Memorial Day weekend from Ohio. And uh, he was not happy looking at, you know, gas prices and having to fill up his uh, minivan a couple times to get down here. It's really like having to chip in. Uh, you know, to help make that happen. But, you know, those are the kind of things we're going to have to lean into each other over the next few months. Yeah. Uh, helping figure some things out together mm-hmm. and not alone. Yeah, there's, you know, many families where that hurts your feelings and makes you angry. And there are many more families where that's the difference between groceries this month or not. Absolutely. You know, that's the difference between being able to buy school lunch or not mm-hmm. with it. And, you know, because it's... For the average family, that's going to be $150 a month extra. That's $1,200 this year that you weren't Easily. planning on, right, just Easily. for one car. Yeah. And, you know, I know my own kids in their early 20s who are already, you know, feeling the pressure. Yours are too, right? Like, mm-hmm. where do we find a place to live? How do we – we can't afford rent. We can't afford uh, gasoline right now. So we need each other. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know, maybe they're – Maybe there's a mercy in that. You know, God, God's not fallen off the throne. He's not caught off guard. You know, it's not like he's like, oh, crud, I was at the bathroom. I didn't see this. Now I missed all this. I mean, I wasn't there. Like, so he knows this is happening. And, you know, whether you believe he causes it or allows it, sometimes it's just the same thing. And the question, I guess, is, is okay, well, so what are we going to learn from it? What do we hear in it? And maybe there's a hope that we're going to learn some community in it that we desperately need. I mean, if the emotional health of our children is being crushed by the technology and by the the fast-paced lives that we're in. In fact, one of the things I'm going to talk about on Sunday, um, there's a study that just came out. There's a Washington Post story that one of the most surprising things that there, that's literally right under our nose for t- teen depression. So everybody, if you don't know this, it's lack of sleep is one of the main causes uh, exacerbates emotional health. High school seniors right now get 50% less sleep than they need. They're averaging five to six hours a night, and a teenager that age needs nine hours a night. Mm. And the statistic was shocking of how many kids start where they need it, but by the time they're junior, senior in high school, they're down to five, six hours a night. Wow. 
and it, you know, and there's a myriad of things from sure. technology to all of the commitments they have Schedules. to homes, you know, homework and five. So this psychologist is like, Hey, we're looking at all these things, but like the main thing, maybe, maybe they just aren't getting enough sleep. Yeah. And how do we cut that out? And I'm going to be in Psalm 42, by the way, where it talks about day and night, I, tears are my food. I mean, he's talking about his depression. I can't sleep. Yeah. Wow. A lack of sleep and and the psalmist was happening. So, mm. uh, fellowship, the lack of loneliness in it uh, is what was designed for. And so a devotion to that, you know, for most of us, uh, that's an aspirational value. But what would be, I don't know, like think like today is what, May, whatever it is, 23rd, like a year from now, if you spent a year from now, then say like June 1 of uh, 20, am I not even close? What day? It's 25th. Oh, man. You're a couple of days off. Oh. <laughs> uh. You know, June of 2023, if you devoted this year to fellowship, what would, how would your life look different? Yeah, absolutely. From, you know, not just gathering on a Sunday. Yes. Gathering. And we, we put together 242 groups because that's a, we're giving you an option mm-hmm. for it. But I don't care if it's a 242 group. Somewhere in your life, are you devoted to this group of Jesus people that that's we're right. together, locking arms together? That's right. Yeah, and that can look all kinds of different ways. And that's kind of the point. There's freedom in that. Teaching, gathering, and then remembering the importance of communion, the importance of breaking the bread. Um, it's something that we make a habit of, that we do often here at Conduit each and every, every Sunday. Sunday yeah. um, and there's uh, there's multiple ways to do that. Uh, I could do that anytime during service, but we have a dedicated time during service, yeah. during, during our worship time. Um and, uh, you know, I remembered I told that one story on Sunday about the, the garlic pepper crackers that accidentally totally got forgotten that. ordered and put in in the communion cups. Uh, yeah, people people did not appreciate that. <laughs> they just, you know, it was supposed to be just a regular cracker, right? Well, we accidentally ordered some, uh, some garlic-flavored ones for that week, so that was interesting. But it also reminded me of the time at the high school when we forgot— the tub that held all of the crackers and the juice. Do you remember this? No. We forgot it. We didn't have any because you know we were living out of a trailer, mm-hmm. setting up and tearing down every Sunday. Well, the the t- the communion tub somehow got lost or forgotten or left behind somewhere, misplaced, and so we had nothing to do communion with. So we, <laughs> but what we did have is we had vending machines at the high school. I don't remember this. Don't remember. I must have been in Africa or something. <laughs> it seems like I'd remember this. And so we 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 gathered all of our change, put it together, and grabbed like, I don't know, like five or six uh, grape Gatorades out of the vending machine for the juice. So you could be hydrated. <laughs> and uh, and then crackers. We just pulled a bunch of crackers and then took them out. Like, it was like cheese and crackers Like or peanut something. butter crackers or cheese? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just took the crackers out. And uh, made this little makeshift communion uh, stations from the vending machines. Oh, that's awesome. And it works, uh, right? Because It worked. It worked. Uh, to me, it's the gospel. The communion is the gospel. It's that. Right. Like it's, This is yeah. Jesus. The reason that he came was to live the life that I can't so that he would die the death that I should so that I don't have to. And that's about as simple as it gets. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, they say that sometimes something so simple you have to go to seminary to misunderstand it. And the simplicity of it and the importance of reminding ourselves on a weekly basis, it's whatever else we're doing. And, you know, the challenge, of course, is that you don't make it some, you know, rote, you know, does that time again. And But I think that allowing ourselves to have a moment between you and, and the father and your family, you don't need a, a holy man between you, me controlling the, uh, controlling the who gets it and who doesn't and when and you know, Jesus is perfectly capable of figuring that stuff out. And, you know, one of the problems, by the way, uh, I don't know if you've heard this in the past, but one of the problems, we've had people leave the church over it, actually, is that I don't control or we don't. I guess, well, they say me, but it's just we because I'm, I'm not, you know, it's not a one-man show up there, but that we don't control who gets it. What if a non-believer gets it? What yeah. if? Open communion versus closed communion. Yeah. And generally speaking, what they're talking about is Paul in 
think it's First Corinthians talking about t- eating and drinking of the body and blood uh, un- in an unworthy manner. And the, and so the question is, what does that mean? What does an unworthy manner mean? Some some people, by the way, teach that that means you need to repent of your sins. Uh, if you have any sin, any unconfessed sin, you shouldn't take communion. That's one idea. Um, most Church of Christ people, by the way, uh, like they have, you have to be baptized. You can't if you don't. And so that's an unworthy manner. But the passage, I don't know if you can Google it and pull it up, but if you read the chapter that he's talking about it to the church at Corinth, he actually tells us what the unworthy manner is. They were getting hammered. It was a love feast. They were coming in early. But here's what he specifically talks about. And those of you who come in and you are rich and you eat all of the food and so that those who come later have nothing, those who are poor have nothing. Do you not have food at home? Can you not for a little bit? It's actually a really beautiful picture the unworthiness of it was you have no concern for those around you who have nothing. So our modern tradition of a communion is not the way that they would have done it then. There, it was an actual meal. Uh, there, there's reference to it actually being yeah. called the love feast. Yeah. And uh, that today feels like that would be something completely different. But anyway, it's like HBO after dark kind of stuff. But then it was a feast of, of agape and but, you know, he's saying to the church, like, there are poor people. And, and by the way, poor people, like the people I grew up in, me, it's because we're working, man. Like, I'm, I am in the fields. I am shucking corn, right? I am shoveling, you know, cow crap. I'm, you know, so if I get there a little bit late, all the food's gone, you know. And again, our modern thing, even the poorest of us in America, we still have something in our fridge. But he's, so my point is, that's the unworthy manner. So it's not like I'm just saying, right. you know, again, let the word of God devoted to the word. Mm-hmm. What does the word actually say? What does it say in context? And in context, that's the unworthy manner. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I have to do a quick test on everybody, like a driver's test, and you have a now a communion license because you've passed the communion test. Uh, I, I truly believe that that's the unworthy manner, and God does not like it when you take advantage of people who are less fortunate and have not as much as you do. And uh, so we say for all of us, and, you know, I will say on a Sunday, you know, most times if you're not a believer, this is, you don't have to, you know, but at the same time, I don't think Jesus is waiting with a giant, you know, hammer ready to smack them right. with it. If anything, what a chance for them to actually hear the gospel. It's like its own little gospel track with a, with a cracker and, and some, uh, some juice to preach the gospel to ourselves. So true. You know, you would think also on a sidebar, that after all of these years, that they would figure out a better way to create these little the to go the Lifeway Lunchables, the Lifeway Lunchables, the little wafer and juice. Yeah. I mean, we've gone really skimpy on these things. Like the wafers are, I don't even know how these. I mean, are these FDA approved? I mean, they're just styrofoam, isn't it? I mean, it's for sure. I don't think it's a food product. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Kind of like government cheese. It may be worse because it's gotta be worse because you could. There's no way that there is gluten or like any wheat in these no, wafers. It almost feels like the same material that they would use, like in a confetti cannon. <laughs> you know, like so the newsboys got off tour and the, the confetti they swept up and then they put them in the Lifeway Lunchables. Another newsboys reference. To, yeah, right. Hey, if Dave Wagner, if you're listening, uh, looking for some free tickets. I don't know. I just feel like <laughs> I just feel like they could do better. They well, they could. And maybe that maybe that's our business model. Maybe we could. Maybe uh, we have a revenue stream. <laughs> conduit communion. Uh, honestly, is Lifeway the only place left on the planet that makes those things? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I need to research this now. Yeah. Right. Uh, we do know this. They are not tasty, and they no. may or may not be edible. But you know, it's funny. The uh, the other option, uh, the Church of Christ way, is the, uh, the actual bread. Well, we actually, if you remember right, we used we to, used do, to that. do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, like a giant loaf, and you pull your piece off. Your body's pulled. I remember my son years ago, a decade ago, that's producing our show right now. He he got a hold of the communion bread after the end of service. Yeah, well, so, so like we're all packing up. And waste the, it. Yeah. We're packing up in the school, and Mike is running around with a loaf of bread, just just chewing it off. 
Because yeah, actually, it was good bread. We used to get it from Panera. I don't know if you know that or not. Fresh. We get those. Uh, we get the bagels for the team, and then uh, grab a couple of loaves of like sourdough <laughs> and throw it on the uh, the thing. But yeah, that um, it, it's. Like, I didn't do a thus saith the Lord on it. Like, I didn't sit down when we started the church. And uh, I don't know. Cause I would say this, Church of Christ people, if like if I didn't believe in the Holy Spirit and tongues and all this stuff, like, they would actually think we were a Church of Christ. Like, they, uh, like Chris Markgraf, Joe Beam, like those Church of Christ guys, like, they love that we do communion every week. And you know who else loves it, by the way? The Catholics. When Cutlass did to Sea of Faces. Do you remember that song? Of course, yeah. Sea of Faces. Sea of Faces. It was on our second record. Big song. That was the record where we, we sat down and we had a little chalk talk with John Macca and James and the gang saying, hey, look, you have a couple of options. One, you can continue to play butt rock, right? And you can continue to play to an audience of people with dark eye makeup and fishnet stockings and goth people. Or you can have a career. Like, you can actually feed your families. Those are your two choices here. And... So we uh, we were like, we're not trying, you know, they're like, well, we don't want to sell out. We don't want to sell out. Like, oh, yes, you do. How about just sell something? You want to sell some tickets. <laughs> like, when you go to Dallas, you want that to sell out. So I don't know what you're talking about, but but a Sea of Faces was their first foray into selling some, you know, some tickets, trying to make it. was a, a huge, family. huge record, massive branding overall. So there is a, uh, in that video for Sea of Faces, your body is the bread, your blood is the wine. And there's this uh, scene in the music video where the the wine spills on the table and the Catholics loved it. <laughs> loved it. We were getting Catholic youth conferences, Catholic uh, What was events. the big one over in uh, in Europe, like CYO or something mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, the we got that one too. Massive yeah, yeah. Catholic conference. It's called CYA? CYO or oh, something okay, like that. Oh, okay, sorry. CYA is something completely different. Um, we played an event like... Uh, like in St. Louis, and, and I was like, I did So first of all, I didn't know there was like a Catholic market for music. I had no idea there was like a Catholic yeah. thing out there. And I guess like Aaron Schust and some others have had that. But Matt Marr, yeah. Oh, Matt Marr, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cutlass for about eighteen months was the Catholic flavor of the month, and it was literally from that one song, and they loved it. And so communion song was good. Yeah, and they think, by the way, uh, I think it's, it's transubstantiation. I can't even say it. substantiation. They believe that when you this is. Do you know this? They believe that when you put the bread in your mouth, it literally the changes into body of Christ, to flesh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a little creepy if I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, but that, they, I, so I, don't, I've, I clearly don't. I don't believe that. Um, but it's like somewhere. I, what I what I appreciate about the Catholic faith is their high esteem for one of the only real commands that Jesus said. Hey, keep doing this one. Um, it, I, I respect that about them. And I, uh, for us, want that to be a part of my life. I mean, I I remember taking Stellar Cart to Alaska, uh, golly, in 2009, 10. And so John Howard was part of it back then. I think Joey was as well, like Paramore guys now, but Adam, A.G., Cody, and we were like somewhere in Alaska. And I don't know if you've ever been to Alaska, but it's like everything's big and everything's glorious. And we got up on a mountain somewhere and we, we actually took communion together and had this real beautiful moment with the Lord and uh, there's just something about that that people, if if it's not a part of your life or your walk with Christ, you don't have to wait for it even on a Sunday. Like it's a great way to incorporate even into your own personal prayer life. This the, the the breaking of bread, you know, which is in in Acts two forty two. The, the most commentators believe it's a Jewish idiom for that for the communion uh, moment, with it, which is where we bring that from. That's right. Teaching, gathering, remembering. And then praying. That's the the fourth devotion that's listed in this verse. And obviously prayer is super important. It's just uh, us having a conversation, us remembering to talk to God. Um, I think it's in Thessalonians where it says praying without ceasing also can be rendered as a constant conversation with God. You are in this constant daily conversation with your Heavenly Father. And... um, and so we, that's something that's super important to us, so, so much so that this summer we're devoting our next teaching series to prayer, Yeah, yeah diving into the Psalms and um, learning from those Psalms, as you mentioned a, a second ago, about how David, most, who wrote most of the Psalms, um, was crying out, mm-hmm. and that crying out 
um, can many times look like our prayers. I would say should look like our prayers. Like I, I think part of why we're doing it this summer even is if you think about prayer, we say prayer, people have a hundred different things of what they think it is. And yet if you're to ask somebody like to pray in a situation, like where do I even start? Like I don't pray in public, pray out loud. Like what do I even say? What you know? And what I love about Psalms, it's why we're in this for the summer, uh, I think it was Tim Keller that said, Jesus told us what to pray, but Psalms teaches us how to pray. That you have literally being honest. So even like with your your feelings, it's kind of what I'm a little bit I'm going to talk about on Sunday is that, you know, there's this, this kind of these extremes out there. One is that you, your feelings are everything and you have to just soak in them and be. And then this other extreme of like your feelings are nothing. You should just ignore them and overcome them. And the Bible is just will not be reductionistic like that. It's, yeah, you are angry. You are sad. But have you talked to Jesus about it? Have you taken it to Jesus? One of the best places, one of the best kinds of prayers is, God, I'm just really angry here. I'm sad. This is not fair. And if you read Psalms in general, like if you've ever read it front to back, I've only done that once. It's kind of a long book. And and I don't think it was, by the way, it wasn't meant to be read like that. It was a collection right. of prayers and yeah. Psalms. And, but I think it's Eugene Peterson that says that uh, the last five Psalms are all praise. So up until then, it's some mm-hmm. tension, some frustration, but the, but almost every psalm ends with, okay, but here we're back to, you know, including Psalm 42. Uh, I'm frustrated. My enemies are surrounding me this, but but he will, it leads to praise. And the last five chapters being only praise, it's like if you pray long enough, it ends up in praise. Uh, and so learning how to pray uh, together, separately, bringing it to Jesus is something that we get to do. And when you think about it in terms of we get to do that, I don't know that I take it for granted. I know I do. You didn't get, you didn't get to do that used to be. You had to go to a priest and he would go to God. And now we have this open invitation to talk to God directly. That's huge. Yeah. And, and the idea that I have to say something that I have to say it right, that I have to pray it right. I have, you know, those are all way, I think, things that keep us from actually praying. We, we, we sort of define it in this certain way. And, and again, even in our modern lives, because of the mod- modernity that is around us, is modernity a word or is that just a vaccine? Like <laughs> modernity? Is that a, because of modernity, uh, I don't know if that's a word or not. We shall fact check this. Like we, so we, like we'll read like, you know, Charles Spurgeon, he used to get up at four in the morning and he'd pray and, you know, and you think, oh, he must have been so spiritual. But he went to bed at like six o'clock because there was no electricity and he wasn't being torn in a hundred directions in a million directions. And so, so yeah, there was a spiritual moment to it, but his devotion to prayer, ours is going to be more of a challenge because again, just like for fellowship, there's a hundred million things competing for our devotion and our time. And so we have to actually, you know, move into that. Like when you and I go to Wyoming in a couple of weeks, we, there will be no uh, cell phone access. There'll be no internet access praise god and at some point you know you can't scroll doom scroll before bed so might as well pray yeah that's good yeah i mean there's it's um it's something that i think our our modern culture um discourages not mis- discourages but it's just, there's it's not paid attention to enough it's discounted it's it's um, pushed aside this idea of prayer. Um, I mean, obviously, a godless culture, a post-modern mm-hmm. culture, would not even recognize it. And actually, they would uh, ascribe to a type of prayer. And honestly, it's kind of been taken over by uh, humanism with mindfulness. So mindfulness is exploding. The mm-hmm. word mindfulness, the concept of mindfulness, thought control peace is re- it's 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 a it's an idea of prayer yeah. but it's been ta- it takes the lord out of it and yeah. it's focusing on yourself it's being a situational atheist yeah like i believe god is in control i believe this 
but I'm but in those situations where I'm choosing not to pray, I'm I'm saying something without saying anything, which is that I'm putting my trust in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first went down this road of becoming a pastor, I um, was I, I, I met with the people at Acts twenty nine um, years and years ago. The organization, yeah, the or yes, or the organization, Mark Driscoll, and that whole it's a whole other podcast, but. I went through the whole theology thing, and you know, I, I, they weren't like my jet stream at all. Uh, theological porcupines, man. They made a lot of really great points, but man, they were real, real sharp. Uh, but I do remember a conversation with Ray Ortland, a very, very well respected pastor um, who probably won't even remember this, but he said to me, Darren, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you jump first, ask questions later. That you, your entire business model of life has been set up that way. Now, this is coming from a theological, uh, seminary-trained, you know, head knowledge guy, saying, "But you can't neglect prayer. Your temptation will always be to act first and pray later." And I want to challenge you to not do that. And twelve years later, those words ring in my ears as I still struggle to pray first and act later. Uh, I tend to act first and pray later still. So. This is my own little aspirational value of devotion to this. It's me being devoted to verses 43, 44, 45, 46. And that is always going to get me in trouble if I don't stay devoted to prayer and then let those things come as a result of it. Yeah, It's really good, really good reminder. I mean, this verse is a really good reminder. That's why we we taught on it um, over, over the past few weeks. And yeah, this summer, Summer of Psalms, that's the new sermon series. We're going to start it this Sunday. We'll go from Acts 2.42 right into Psalm 42, um, which will be easy to remember. And uh, we're going to learn a little bit about uh, what it looks like to pray when... Yeah, this week when you're in the desert. When you're in the desert, yeah. When you so don't like, hear God's voice, when you're you're out there alone. The subtitle to the, the sermon series is Learning to Pray When, and then fill in the blank, and... Um, this week, Psalms 42. So if you listen to this before Sunday, go ahead and dive into Psalm 42. Just kind of um, sit in that for, for a few days. We're excited to wrap up this this series. It was really good. We felt like it was defining, um, helped give some parameters to um, what a church can look like, what it could look like, what it looks like for us as conduit. We learned what our vision, our mission and purpose and our creed is. Um that conduit is more than just a name. It's, uh, it's, it's a kind of church. It's a type of church and that we would be a Jesus church. If you missed any of these teachings over the past few weeks, obviously you can find those on this podcast or on our YouTube channel. Just search Conduit Church at YouTube. You can catch up on our teaching and maybe enjoy some of the worship um, that we have uh, before each teaching. Um, all of that's up there on our YouTube channel as well. And if you have any questions, if you have any prayer requests, Specifically, hmm. you can find a uh, a prayer request link on our website. It's down at the bottom. Just scroll down to the bottom, enter it there, and our our prayer team and our staff will will pray over that. And many have found that and have done that of late, and we encourage you to do that as well. And we pray that you have a great week, and we'll join you again 